0: Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for 10 pounds or 2 months access to our website and apps also for 10 pounds. Go to churchtimes.co.uk/new-reader. The Church Times is hosting a number of online events in the coming months. On Thursday, 21st of January, we're hosting a live webinar on clergy burnout, well-being and resilience. Tickets are 10 pounds or 5 pounds for Church Times subscribers. For more information, and to book tickets, visit churchtimes.co.uk. Recent events in the United States show that Western-style liberal democracies may not be as robust as we like to think. That's what the Bishop of St Albans, Dr Alan Smith, argues in a comment article in this week's Church Times. The arrest last week of pro-democracy demonstrators in Hong Kong, and the attempt by the British Prime Minister to prorogue Parliament in 2019, showed that threats to democracy are not confined to the US. On this week's podcast... I talk to Bishop Allen about what needs to be done to support democratic government and what part churches have to play. We also talk about the campaign he has led to reduce the harm caused by gambling. Bishop Allen, welcome to the Church Times podcast.
1: Ed, great to be with you.
0: You write in the Church Times this week that recent events in the United States suggest that Western-style liberal democracies might not be as robust as we might think. Were you surprised by the events in in the Capitol last week, or, or to some extent, did you see it coming?
1: No, I didn't see it coming. I was absolutely astonished, like I think most people were, to see the photographs of people who'd broken into the Capitol building and were uh, creating absolute havoc. Um, Of course, some of it, looking back, has been coming, because one of the things I write about is the way that if we're going to have democracy, it's important that leaders uphold the instruments of democracy and don't try and denigrate them. And uh, sadly, that's what's been going on uh, from some of the highest levels in, in the, the states. And I argue that it's, it's actually a wider problem in the world. You also
0: mentioned Hong Kong and, of course, the UK, where, of course, the government tried to prorogue Parliament
1: in 2019 and was only stopped from doing so by the Supreme Court. Yes. And I, I think it's very interesting that there's been some uh, rhetoric around of really being um, critical um, of the whole sort of basis of democracy. I was very, very struck when um, Geoffrey Cox, the former attorney general, um, talked about uh, the fact that MPs had no moral right to sit during that time when they were proroguing. Well, actually, power is in parliament, not in the executive. And of course, one of the debates that's going on at the moment that's been very vigorously um, put forward by a number of very prominent politicians, both in the Commons and the Lords, is is the way that the decisions over the pandemic are not first of all being made in, in through the parliamentary channels it's being made by the prime minister who then has a debate and and actually that's a very worrying development because that's what dictators do now of course in a crisis uh you know if a house is on fire you don't have a meeting you shout, get out but actually there has been time to have debates uh before those decisions have been made and so i think when people are criticising um, the, the system, it doesn't lead to the flourishing of democracy. That's the point I was exploring. And just with the pandemic, I suppose it's, it's been going on long enough that
0: decisions have changed. And does that particularly warrant more parliamentary
1: scrutiny when the government seems to change its mind or change course quite a lot? Well, I think, I think the, the whole point about parliaments, uh, they're, they're stacked full of people who've got the most incredible skills and insights, including loads of, of people who are medically trained. And I see this in, in the House of Lords. Actually, we're probably going to get far better decisions when we allow a, a lot of people who are very well informed to debate stuff. And I think that's what worries me uh, at the moment is the danger is a small number of people um are making decisions without a a lot of processing going on and it's not been a particularly um happy history so far I mean people I guess some people think we've handled it quite well actually the statistics tell us we're not doing very well as a country handling this pandemic now it's very difficult uh I accept it's very difficult, Uh, but actually we need to do everything we can to bring all the people into the, into the debate and and that's what Parliament is for.
0: I'm going back to the piece, you, you write that we need to strengthen the fabric of togetherness, which is the lifeblood of democracy out of which society is made and in this religion has a part to play. I mean, what might that look like in a society that seems to be increasingly secular?
1: Well, of course, it's an interesting, when, when you say secular, it, it's interesting, the levels of belief in various uh, things remain fairly stubbornly high. There's certainly a decline in organized uh, uh, religion going on. And of course, over the centuries, there have been huge, great um, tides going in and, and going out. Um, of course, religion, the word itself, religio, means to bind people together. And one of the things I argue is perhaps one of the reasons a number among a number of reasons why um, democracy has flourished and thrived and developed in Western Christendom is because of a number of sort of jointly held values about um, bearing with one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, praying for leaders and so on. And and democracy depends on the trust of the people you can't impose it. The moment you impose it, you're a dictator. It it relies on people having basic trust. It relies on uh, the vast majority of people feeling they have a stake in society and they want to give to it as well as receive from it. And those are intangibles and they can go very quickly um, where either large growing minorities feel they've got no part to play or uh, there's uh, a perpetual economic underclass. That's what's happened in some countries that have had revolutions. So we need to attend to those deep things about how do we build a society? And I'm arguing we can't go back to where we were centuries ago as the church, which was actually quite a dominant position. We have to do it through service. You're also right that we have to find new ways to tell, quote, the old, old story.
0: Um, You you explain bit about what you what you mean by that
1: well uh, the the old song tell me the old old story is is if you like sort of shorthand for many of the great truths which those of us who are in the christian church um and indeed the the uh, the judeo-christian tradition which has basically been so fundamental here uh, in the west so uh as I stand up each week and preside at a Eucharist and preach the good news of Jesus Christ, I'm uh, proclaiming that we're a community uh, where there's a a number of uh, things about the dignity of all people, where everybody matters, all have a part to play in the body of Christ and so on. So what I'm saying is how do we engage with some of those great convictions in today's world? And I, I point to the fact that one of the things that's been absolutely inspirational is the incredible example of people working in the NHS and what is it about them? It's the self-sacrifice. So still today, notions of self-sacrifice are immensely powerful, despite all the glitz of celebs and uh, do your own thing, create your own life. Um, you know, if you don't like your family, get a new one, all of that stuff, which is sort of around on popular in popular media. Actually, what's interesting is this narrative of the NHS sort of cuts through it. And I also suggest that one other area we might want to think about, which is profoundly linked with our Christian roots, is to do with the whole concern for the environment. So I think as we look as the church, what our part is, it's working in collaboration with others. It's not going to be dominating, but those would be areas where I think we could uh, build on. So examples of self-sacrifice are absolutely the sort of thing that sustain democracy. And that's that, um, the way in
0: which people value self-sacrifice so much. Do you, do you think that's rooted in, in the Christian story of our, of our nation or, or in its Christian roots, that particular valuing of self-sacrifice?
1: Well, it's found in other cultures as well, but it is one that uh, actually uh, is, is rooted. Well, there's a number of things that are rooted very specifically in, in the Christian uh, tradition. And of course, the, the great symbol is the cross of Jesus offering himself for others. There are plenty of cultures who would absolutely and uh, philosophies would absolutely despise that. They would see that as celebrating weakness. There's all sorts of political uh, uh, traditions which would want to see power and might and crushing people to be much more what we ought to be about. Indeed, one of the things that's worried me about the, the Brexit debate, there's many good things about it, but some people have been, in fact, one very prominent politician said, now's the opportunity to go out and conquer the world again. Um, I guess he meant economically. Now, I thought to myself, I, I don't know what the world looks like to him, but I don't think that's the role of Britain as we are moving into uh, uh, you know, the next decade. Um, I hope we do well. I hope we thrive economically, politically. I think we need a different sort of rhetoric in a world which is a global village. I mean, also in the piece, you make some practical suggestions about how we can
0: protect and strengthen democracy here? One example you give is is compulsory citizenship classes. I mean, how might they help? And are there any other suggestions you you have?
1: Well, I think, uh, I certainly think there's a role within the churches uh, ourselves to to be uh, celebrating and uh, perpetuating and encouraging democratic um, involvement. And I hear plenty of people who are terribly derogatory about uh, politicians to which my always say well why don't you stand then you know pl- pl- you know we need people to do it and I know many of our politicians the vast majority of them are good people who want to make the world a better place and I, I think it's very easy to to denigrate people but um, so I, I think there is there's a need for us uh, not to go around trying to talk democracy down. Uh, Some years ago, I often told this story in schools, I was traveling in South America, particularly in Peru, when the country was in civil war. And I saw for the first and only time some dead bodies on the street being shot. And it it, made such an impact on me. I vowed there and then, however awful I think our political system is, I will always vote because it's better than that. I can walk out of my front door and no, I have got. I can walk out in freedom. Just going back to the citizenship uh, classes, certainly when I was young, we, we didn't do that. Partly, I guess, because we told our, our story as a nation um, in quite an imperialistic way. And we're trying to come to terms with that because there's some very good things about it, but some very shameful things about it. Um, I, I think one of the things that citizenship classes can help uh, young people, uh, and perhaps people who are taking citizenship, they already have to do some of that, um, is, to, is to think about uh, what life is like here and what it's like in many other parts of the world. So my story of Peru would be perhaps one that might illustrate illustrate it. But the facts are we're immensely privileged with the freedoms we, we have. And I think exploring what uh, duties that imposes upon us is important. In other words, I would want to argue it's actually a duty to vote. It's a duty to think about how can we contribute to our nation and our local community, not some right that I have um, that I can just demand and walk away from. That's not what human life is really like.
0: Just coming to your um, role on the Bishop's Bench in, in the House of Lords, you, you you speak there quite often and on, on a range of issues. Um, I know you're I think you lead spokesperson for ag- agriculture, but um. Y- You speak on many issues there. I mean, what distinctive contribution do you think the Lord Spiritual make to the democratic process? And how would you answer critics who say um, this is sort of an outdated and unjustifiable thing to to still have bishops
1: in in the second chamber? Well, it's a long and it's a complex issue, and I'd be glad to explore it with you. I think it's worthwhile pointing out there's about 800 members of the House of Lords. If all the appointments are made. There are just 26 of us. And on a normal day, there'll be one or two of us there. So by and large, we don't you know, have any great sway at all in terms of votes. And indeed, we speak quite a bit, but uh, don't vote so much, partly because we're not um, whipped as other parties are. I think the bishops quite consciously try to come at issues from uh, other perspectives. One of the perspectives is we all work in diocese, so we're out and about amongst people at grassroots. I've put questions down in the House recently about one of our local hospices, um, about the local homelessness project and what are the issues. You know, they've been in touch with me about what's happening during the Covid pandemic. So I'm very consciously trying to bring in insights. I've asked questions and raised issues with ministers about our local universities. So I I think there's the local uh, bit. The other thing is a lot of bishops are are involved quite deeply with charities. So we would very often try and raise those sorts of issues. And then uh, sometimes things crop up. And one of the main areas I've been working in is in gambling and gambling reform, uh, trying to lessen gambling related harms. And that came about because a family came to see me, uh, their son had grown up, son had killed himself. They sat in my study. They broke down. They said, we don't know what to do. We, we don't want this to happen. Anybody else, what can you do? Can you help? And I felt very helpless. I listened to them, prayed with them, but then put some questions down and, uh, what became very rapidly clear was two things. One, the government didn't have a lot of statistics about the extraordinary growth in online gambling and, and the harm it was having. Possibly one or two people taking their lives every day um, in this country. So horrific that story. They they didn't know about that. And the second thing was I was suddenly inundated with people emailing me and writing to me saying, are, are, typically it was their sons. A few younger women have taken their lives, but typically... Um, Our son also took his life. And I found myself with people pleading with me, would I pick up and run with this? And as a result of that, I managed to uh, work through the system and we got a select committee, uh, which then wrote a report, which is now leading to a review of the Gambling Act 2005. And we now have a coalition of peers. There's over 150 of us in peers for gambling reform, the largest uh, lobby group in the House of Lords, trying to uh, lessen um, problem gambling. And what are some of the specific changes you'd like to see in in the review of the Gambling Act? Uh, Yes, we want to make a whole lot of changes. We we believe that um, the wall-to-wall advertising on uh, television has got totally out of hand, and there's a massive grassroots uh, support for some sort of reform there. We believe the gambling industry, which is making billions but is costing the economy... Massive amounts of money, the the NHS, for example, at a time when it's desperately short of funds, is now running 14 problem gambling clinics. We're arguing that the the industry should pay proper levies uh, because they are, after all, privatising the profits of gambling and nationalising the costs, which seems to us unjust. We believe there ought to be a gambling ombudsman. There there are over 60 recommendations in the report, but they're, they're good ones to start with. And what would it take for those recommendations to be be implemented? Do you you, you presume it needs buy-in from from the government itself and and from MPs? Some of those recommendations can simply be uh, implemented through existing regulations, and the Gambling Commission, if it wishes to, can do some of that. That's why we have our lobby group and we've been meeting with them. Others are going to need some changes in legislation. The problem at the moment is the 2005 uh, Gambling Act is, as somebody put it, um, you know, an, an analogue uh, uh, act in a digital age. Everything's gone online now. Our young people are getting used to to betting on their phones as they're watching football games. None of the legislation 15 years ago had foreseen that. So we need to get the whole thing reviewed.
0: I've, I've noticed that watching Arsenal matches with my seven-year-old son just being bombarded with gambling ads, and I, I do worry about that.
1: Well, it's the gamification of sport. When I was young, we we loved watching football and cheering our side on, but you didn't have to gamble. Now what's been very clever is the industry has persuaded people that integral to sport is the need to bet. That's been a brilliant uh, marketing ploy. But I'm worried that many of our... In fact, I know some parents who won't let their children know Um, watch games because all the time there are ads flashing around on the boards and on the pitch and in the adverts and say, I'm not prepared for my child to think this is just absolutely normal and acceptable. Do you have a sense that the
0: Football Association recognises this problem? I mean, there's so much money, I guess, pouring into clubs and TV stations and radio through this. Are Are they aware of the problem and willing
1: to do something? I think they're aware of the problem. I think they've got themselves into a difficult position. Uh, The the industry used to rely on tobacco advertising. Uh, When the great campaigns went through, they said the whole of football is going to collapse if we take away football, uh, 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 cigarette, uh, uh, tobacco sponsorship. It didn't. Um, And the same is going to happen. There are many, many now very well-known players who've got problem gambling uh of suffering problem gambling who are speaking out and it's going to change i'm just surprised the fa doesn't get ahead of the game and lead on it and get the kudos rather than fight it all the way just finally um we, we reported
0: in some detail about the government's plans to cut the international aid budget and i know you were among the, the bishops who, who spoke out strongly against this um i mean perhaps just first of all could you say a bit about the the harm that you think this will cause and then also whether you have any hope that this could be opposed in Parliament, in the the Commons of the Lords, or at least the damage mitigated?
1: Yes, I I certainly think there's going to be very vigorous uh, opposition to it. It is difficult, isn't it? There is a lot of suffering in this country at the moment, and we're acutely aware of people who've got COVID. Uh, I have a neighbour who's working for the NHS, absolutely, totally exhausted, and I don't detract from that at all. But let's be clear, it's far, far worse in many other countries where there are hardly any uh, ventilators, uh, where people may not be able to get to a hospital. And I think it's trying to keep it in uh, a perspective. So I've always felt one of the great things that we as a country did was to lead by example, which is, um, and I want to pay tribute to uh, previous governments in doing that um, in the face of quite a lot of opposition. My personal view is, it's a short-term uh, exped- uh, decision made for expediency and and actually will harm what we're doing in the world in the long run. I know like everybody else, there's been some horror stories where aid has got misspent. Of course, that's always going to happen. Um, it happens in nations, even happens in families where somebody uh, misspends money. <laughs> um, so that we're always going to get some of that, but I believe profoundly that it matters. So I hope it will only be a, a temporary Uh, move and we will be able to get back to uh, the same percentage of GDP that we've given over many years now and I believe given a real lead in our in our world.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.